Welcome to episode 135 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by our guest, um, Rob Silbers, uh, the Assistant Secretary for Cybersecurity Policy at uh, the Department of Homeland Security. Welcome, Rob. Good to be here. All right. Uh, uh, and we'll be talking to Rob after the news roundup. Uh, the uh, participants for that will include Michael Vadis, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now litigating in our New York office. Uh, uh, Maury Schenk, uh, from, uh, former head of our London office, uh, uh, now uh, doing a lot of technology law. Also joining us are Katie Castle, who's an attorney in our uh, international regulatory compliance uh, group. But really, you know, why don't we just start saying you're a cybersecurity lawyer? We should just <laughs> admit it. Um, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, uh, and boy, when I got up this morning, I really felt like it. Uh, uh, so let's jump in. Um, so I want to start with the uh, issue that has got the Internet all uh, a Twitter. Uh, a, it is a... Uh, search warrant that was executed in California back in May, uh, and everybody is just astonished and appalled that the search warrant authorized uh, the FBI to um, collect the fingerprints on the phone of anybody they found when they uh, entered the premises that they were to search. Obviously, the purpose of that was so that they could open the phones, uh, and they were basically making everybody uh, use their prints to open the phone. Uh, I have to say, I don't I don't even see what the issue is there. Uh, Michael, uh, maybe you do. Um, if you're in a place that is subject to a search warrant and you have something that's described on the search warrant, you should expect it to be seized, and uh, you shouldn't be able to say, I won't give you my fingerprint so that you can seize it, but you can't actually search it. Uh, seems to me uh, pretty obvious that there's uh, um, that a search warrant can require this, but maybe I'm uh, insufficiently civil libertarian in my outlook. Yeah, you know, I think there are uh, very significant Fourth and Fifth Amendment issues uh, from what I've read about this case. The, the Fourth Amendment issues are, um, my understanding is that the search warrant doesn't particularly describe the phones that are to be searched, uh, what they expect to find on those phones, uh, or what evidence in, in general they're looking for. Um, that's a classic Fourth Amendment problem, with the lack of particularity in describing what's to be searched and seized. On the Fifth Amendment, you know, the taking of a fingerprint in and of itself is not a testimonial act, uh, or the giving of the fingerprint is not a testimonial act. So, so uh, forcing someone to give his or her fingerprint is not a violation of the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. But courts have held many times that certain acts, uh, uh, the production of evidence, can be testimonial if it tells something to the government that it doesn't already know, uh, other than the content of the evidence. So. If you force someone to open his phone by pressing his thumb on the on the little circle, um, that act, if it unlocks the phone, is telling the per, telling the government this person owns the phone, this person has access to to this phone through the through his his fingerprint, therefore controls the device and the evidence therein. As opposed to uh, finding there. it in his pocket, right? You know, I I think it's pretty obvious uh, uh, in general whose phone is whose uh, these days, uh, uh, and 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 uh, you know. 
as a testimonial act? You, you think that saying this, this phone clearly belongs to this person, uh, and we've been able to find it by making him do something? I mean, you, what, suppose you found DNA on it. Uh, would that be a testimonial, uh, uh, a genetic search? Well, clear, clearly not in the Republic of Baker. But in, <laughs> yeah, in, exactly. <laughs> in, in the U in the U.S., there there are, you know, there's not a ton of of cases addressing the Fifth Amendment in the context of decryption, um, but there are there are a good number of cases, including one um, from the Eleventh Circuit from I think 2013, uh, which I think the defendants in this case can can cite um, that do describe the the act of providing. Uh, a decryption key or a password or something uh, as being testimonial because it, it, it uh, tells something to the government that it doesn't know. And the other problem is that since the government in the search warrant doesn't identify what's going to be on these phones, the government can't say it's a foregone conclusion that this phone belongs to this person and we already know what's going to be on it, which is the way they can get around the Fifth Amendment. That, that doesn't seem applicable here based on what I've read. I'm, I'm deeply skeptical about the testimonial idea. I, I, this just is not testimonial. It's, uh, it's evidence uh, and it's an act. Uh, uh, and yes, the act may tell you this phone belongs to them, but uh, so would uh, any number of other acts, including taking it out of your pocket. Uh, um, uh, the Fourth Amendment issue, I think, is Closer, but mostly because of the revolt of the magistrates. I, I think uh, uh, ten years ago, if you said we expect to find computers and phones in this uh, in the course of searching uh, uh, for drugs, and we expect that there will be evidence of who they're selling their drugs to uh, on the phones and the computers, that that would have been plenty. It's only because magistrates have started to fine-tune what they think is required by way of particularity that there's any Fourth Amendment issue. Am I wrong? Uh, you know, I think it's, it's not just a small group of revolting magistrates, um, pun intended. Uh, I, I think th- there's, there are a lot of courts, there are a lot of district courts and circuit courts that have started to treat digital devices differently, uh, when it comes to Fourth Amendment jurisprudence because of the, the extent of evidence that can be found and the extent of completely unrelated innocuous information that's unrelated to the crime under investigation. So it's, it's not surprising that the law is developing in new ways in this area. Yeah, okay. So uh, I, 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 the Internet can go back to Twittering over this, uh, and uh, uh, they have at least one lawyer who uh, who thinks they're justified. Uh, um, I'd be happy to take the case if anyone wants to call and, and, and confirm. All right. Please. So, so I, uh, somewhere in California there's a dope dealer uh, looking for your number right now. Um, <laughs> all right. I, I, let's Let's jump across the Atlantic uh, because last week there was a decision out of the uh, um, Regulatory Powers Tribunal, I think, uh, uh, which was asked to determine whether uh, GCHQ and MI5's collection of bulk data, and they have a bunch of programs for collecting bulk data, um, violated the European, uh, either UK law or the European Convention on Human Rights. And um, I thought it was a Creative and interesting result, Maury. Uh, um, what did they? What did the uh, tribunal decide? Well, it looked at two kinds of behavior: collection of bulk data and assembly of bulk personal data sets, information on lots of individuals using that data um, and other public data and other public and non-public data, which is more controversial over here because of our data protection laws. 
And what the tribunal said is all of this was permitted by UK law, but because the European uh, Convention on Human Rights now applies directly in the UK, uh, it violated Article 8 of the regarding privacy of the European Convention on Human Rights because the programs hadn't been publicly acknowledged. So they weren't foreseeable. So, yeah, exactly. Um, basically, what they said is the people in the UK need to know the ways in which their data might be collected, not specific in, uh, collection methods. But if it wasn't foreseeable, then it violates European law. But once it was disclosed, which is what led Privacy International to file in this case, um, then it's okay. Now, there was another re restraint of European law which says that the process for, uh, for evaluating whether particular collections are appropriate needs to be sufficient. But the Investigatory Powers Tribunal found that the process that the UK put in place over the course of last year was sufficient. So this is kind of catch-22. Uh, if you can keep the program secret, nobody knows enough to sue you. Uh, and when you disclose it, um, it, it automatically becomes legal. Well, not quite automatically. There is that second prong that you have to make sure that there's enough process to supervise the program. And there was a lot of scrambling once these programs were avowed. Avowal is the term of art used in the decision. So it does does GCHQ need to send a uh, uh, birthday card to uh, uh, Edward Snowden on this? They may have already done that. <laughs> okay. Um, so we've got some regulatory developments we ought to cover. Uh, there's a whole set of new cybersecurity regulations for the financial industry that's just come out of a kind of combined group of financial regulators. Uh, um, Michael, Katie, you, you guys looked at that pretty closely, I think. Yeah, the, it's the Federal Reserve System, the com controller of the currency and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Um, and it's just, it's a joint advance notice of proposed rulemaking. So it's, it's basically describes their thoughts on what they're considering, um, uh, putting into a regulation and it asks a bunch of questions, um, kind of asking how the best way to implement this is and, and things like that. Um, it's focused on big entities, uh, with 50 billion dollars in assets enterprise-wide, um, and it has some heightened requirements for sector-critical system. Mm -hmm. Those are systems that clear or settle at least 5% of the value of transactions in their market. Um, and it basically goes through some government governance requirements, some risk management, um, uh, some incident response. Uh, the incident response I, I found the most interesting, it requires the uh, banks to be able to transfer uh, transfer their business to another entity. If, oh, wow. Um, okay, so this is these, these are like um, a dial of service attacks they have to be proof against. Right, right, or any kind of attack that might um, might uh, cause them to not be able to operate some of their critical business functions. Um, and it sets, it also requires them to um, store any critical records offline in case an attack kind of shuts down their systems. Um, yeah. What about, do you remember whether they... Uh, uh, talk about pen testing, penetration testing. Uh, I've, that's become sort of a, a, a recent flavor of the month. It would actually require people to do penetration testing. It's been great for the pen testing uh, uh, industry. Uh, I just wondered whether they, they talked about that here. I don't know if they explicitly talk about penetration, pe penetration testing. It's, it's more um, kind of 
uh, inventorying all of your assets and just kind of having a risk management and pla- management system in place. It does say for sector critical systems, they're considering requiring um, implementation of the most effective commercial commercially available control controls. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't. I don't think they really get into what that is, but it's. Uh, Whatever the most effective commercially available tools are at the at the time. So well, we may we may may ask Rob at some point to comment on this because it sounds like being designated uh, critical infrastructure is sort of the booby prize. Uh, it's like getting the queen of spades uh, in hearts. Uh, uh, it, it makes you special, but not in a way that uh, anybody in the IT department is going to be thrilled about. Um, uh, and DoD is also getting into the act. It's got a whole cyber. Uh, attack reporting uh, uh, reg uh, for its contractors. Uh, uh, what do what they require? Right. So DOD issued a final rule for contractors regarding it's both safeguards and breach reporting. Um, and they had issued interim rules in August 2015 and December 2015. Uh, and this final rule kind of responds to some of the comments and clarifies some of the requirements. Um, so it clarifies some of the definitions. It clarifies the scope. It doesn't apply to fundamental research contracts or commercial off-the-shelf items. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does keep the requirements to report breaches within 72 hours. Yep. Um, and the, you have to include kind of whatever you have at that time in the report, uh, as, long, as well as the malicious software if it's been isolated. And then it also requires the contractors to have safeguards, um, cybersecurity safeguards in place. And it, it talks, um, it mentions the NIST requirements. Um, and that you can uh, request a variance from those requirements, but it has to be approved by the DoD uh, chief information officer. Okay, so uh, let's let's run through a few quick uh, items and then turn to our interview. Uh, um, last week uh, we saw the filing of a. Uh, government opposition to bail for the NSA uh, uh, information hoarder, Harold Martin, uh, and boy, he's looking less and less like a hoarder and more and more like uh, um, a vendor uh, of classified information. Uh, uh, He's apparently been uh, collecting this stuff for a long time. According to some reports, he had all of the stuff that is being offered for sale by the shadow brokers, uh, that is to say a bunch of tools that uh, had been attributed to NSA. Uh, um, and so the U.S. government is opposing bail and says they're now going to uh, charge him under the Espionage Act. So uh, uh, those of us who thought he might just be a guy who uh, was eager to get his work done, uh, so eager that he took some of it home, uh, are um, uh, wrong. Uh, he's, he's considerably worse than that. Uh, um, the EU, uh, uh, the European Court of Justice has told us that dynamic IP addresses are personal data and subject to the uh, uh, data protection rules, even though most people couldn't tell uh, uh, which individual has, had been using that dynamic address at, uh, at any particular time. Uh, Maury, any surprises about that? I don't think it's terribly surprising. I mean, there's been a precedent for a number of years that IP and addresses in general can be personal data. Um, here, they they said that the German government, even though it couldn't tell um, who its personal, um, for its websites, even though it couldn't tell who dynamic IP addresses are associated with, it had the power to compel ISPs to provide that information, and that made it into personal data 
But the reason it was keeping the addresses was to prevent uh, denial of service attacks. And the court also said that that was an, a, a good reason to keep the dynamic IP addresses. So the plaintiff lost anyhow. Yeah, and that, that the the reason to keep IP addresses, the reasons for cybersecurity, uh, are only going to get more compelling. So my guess is this is a Pyrrhic victory because uh, uh, the security exception is going to swallow the uh, uh, the data protection rule. Yeah, I have a general theory that the rules going forward are not that people can can be prevented from having access to personal data, but it's all about processing. And you may not love the European system, Stuart, but that's the approach that's taken. And for uses like this, I think that hopefully reasonable people will agree that processing is appropriate. Well, that would be that would be great, uh, and I will call you if I meet a reasonable data protection authority in Europe. Uh, um, uh, let, one last thing, uh, I think, uh, before we sort of uh, pick up the the story of the week, really, and use it to uh, to draw Rob into our conversation. Uh, um, uh, I'm struck by the extent to which. Uh, um, uh, People were kind of relaxed about the fact that uh, Julian Assange was publishing all kinds of national security secrets and things that could get people killed. Uh, uh, and people said, oh, yeah, well, boy, sucks to be the U.S. government. Uh, but when he publishes John Podesta's uh, uh, emails, including his risotto recipe, uh, suddenly maybe it's because of the uh, – the campaign suddenly he's like John Dillinger. He's public enemy number one, uh, and all the people who were relaxed about U.S. secrets being out there are just outraged and want him punished. And and the Ecuadorian uh, embassy suddenly uh, decides that uh, Julian Assange shouldn't have uh, access to the internet. They cut him off. Uh, uh, there are rumors that he's sort of mooching uh, a Wi-Fi from uh, neighbors uh, in order to get online, uh, but he's clearly not, um, uh, no longer um, uh, getting routine access to the to the net. Uh, and I'm uh, the only thing surprising about this is that it was uh, Podesta's emails that seem to have triggered that, as opposed to uh, the much more uh, important uh, or or at least uh, dangerous things that he's published on WikiLeaks before. Um, well, you know, I don't, I don't know that it was Podesta's emails that, that triggered this, but it, it's also the case that um, publishing Podesta's emails is part of an extended Russian plot to influence our election. So it's not just publishing someone's risotto recipes. And, and I think that's what, that that's what is important about um those pub- that publication of those emails. No, I think I think I think the bigger plot. The people who are condemning this, including uh, uh, you know ninety percent of the U.S. press, are particularly worried that it might actually hurt Hillary uh, Hillary's election chances, uh, and that it turns out is much worse than hurting U.S. national security. Well, I, I think they're worried that it's it's Russia's effort to influence the election. I don't. You know, you sound like Donald Trump blaming uh, the attack on Mosul, on, you know, Obama just trying to be tough before the election. It's rigged, uh, I tell you, rigged. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, 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 there's, there's I, a more I, fundamental I, thing at stake than, than just trying to elect Hillary. He really I, doesn't need the help at this point. I'm not carrying any water for Donald Trump, but I am astonished at the extent to which the U.S. press has just taken off any pretense of objectivity on this one. They're, they, they are actively determined to make sure that Trump loses and, and, and Clinton wins. And, you know, I understand that as a personal point of view, but, uh, um, the, uh, the, the lack of objectivity and the rush to, to say everything that hurts her must be bad and the people behind it are evil, including Julian Assange, who was a hero last week, um, is striking. I, I don't know uh, a lot of you know mainstream media that were saying Julian Assange was a hero last week. All right. Uh, well, we'll we'll come back to that, uh, uh, and I'm not going to ask Rob to comment on that. I promise. Uh, uh, but I I am going to ask you to talk about the DDoS attacks uh, uh, of Friday. That was the big news Friday over the weekend. Uh, um, it looks as though uh, this was an attack on one of the big uh, d- uh, domain name service providers uh, whose services are essential if uh, people are to find Twitter or uh, uh, Google or Stepto.com. Uh, and um, the reason the attack succeeded is it was orders of magnitude bigger than past attacks on DNS servers, uh, which, you know, are built to take a lot of uh, uh, attacks. Um, and the reason that worked is because the Internet of Things was leveraged to uh, to do that. All these uh, little, uh, uh, digital video recorders and CCTVs and doorbells that were hooking up to the internet, uh, uh, turn out to be completely insecure and easily compromised. And there are now scripts running around that have been open sourced, uh, uh, that have allowed people to build, um, uh, enormous botnets and then use them to launch attacks at, uh, um, Dyn and probably others. Uh, um, and I guess I, I, I'd like to know sort of what DHS is involvement in this is, how you responded to these attacks and what we're going to do about them in the future. Well, it's good to be here, Stuart. I thought I'd start with something easy. Here's what we know about Friday's attacks right now, and the investigation is, mm-hmm. is ongoing and we're learning more. We know that Dyne was subjected to a series of DDoS attacks on Friday. Yep. We know that the attacks as of this time appear to have abated after some mitigation. We also know that the attacks were launched at least in part based on harnessed Internet-connected devices that make up the so-called Internet of Things. DHS's role is the lead role in working with affected entities, including private sector entities, to help them mitigate in the event of cyber intrusions or cyber attacks. So Friday's work is a very good example of what we do every day, though oftentimes in lower profile circumstances. On Friday, in the midst of the attacks, we convened about 20 of the largest communications provider in the United States to share with them everything that we knew and were seeing, the Internet service providers and the like. We were, uh, we were able to obtain cyber threat indicators from this attack. For example, IP addresses used to 
launch malicious So they could suppress that traffic. And we shared it around on an automated basis through our information sharing platforms, both with other federal agencies so they could protect their own networks, as well as with Dyne and other potential victims of the attack so that they could ingest that information and defend themselves. Uh, The broader question is raised about Internet of Things security. And this is an issue that we at DHS have been concerned about for some time. Uh, So many of the uh, devices that increasingly find themselves on people's wrists, like Fitbit, Mm -hmm. or in their hearts, like pacemakers, or in their cars, uh, increasingly connected, uh, as well as in our critical infrastructure systems throughout the country, without consistent security best practices incorporated. That poses all kinds of risks and challenges now you for the users out, and for the country. You've put out some principles, I think, on IoT security, if I remember right. Uh, the, the government had uh, maybe 10, 15 principles for IoT security that it was encouraging people to adopt. We have, over the years, uh, released best practices, mm-hmm. but what we are working on now, what I told you before our conversation, was about our current effort at drafting a set of strategic principles for IoT security. We're planning to publish those in the next few weeks. Okay. So it will be very timely, and that will highlight the risks that IoT stakeholders, from manufacturers to deployers to users, face and proven approaches for tackling those security challenges. And that's going to be an important contribution. So the, the, if I understand the problem here, uh, for, for at least a large chunk of these devices, uh, they had default passwords, uh, the default logins, uh, and a lot of people di- didn't change them. And then they had also the ability to, to uh, 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 log in SSH connections that couldn't be changed. Even if you changed your, your login credentials, there was SSH vulnerability. So these devices are just, um, there's, there's no easy way, even if you could get all six million owners to sit down and puzzle through their, uh, um, uh, their device uh, uh, manuals, you probably couldn't get them secure, could you? That's a huge challenge. You, you, you nailed it. Some devices, uh, even if a vulnerability is discovered, they were designed in a way not to allow for remote patching or upgrading to address that vulnerability. And what you are then relying on is physical recall mechanisms or consumers to take some kind of action, which in many instances is not realistic to expect. And so what we're trying to do at DHS is to bring industry and other critical stakeholders in and say, you need to build in security by design on the front end. Another challenge with respect to the Internet of Things is that it's an emergent area, although it's really a phenomenon at this point, yeah, it's, but it's, still emergent right. in, in, the, in, in terms of time. And the assignment of security responsibility is not always clear. So think about the DDoS attacks. Right. The people who feel the pain are not the ones that actually manufactured or touched the product. Right. They have no ability to change what's happening. The person who bought the Internet-connected DVR in their home and and which is being used for these malicious uh, activities is not feeling this pain. They're not bearing this cost. The manufacturer isn't either. It's the victim dying in this case. Now, the... The, the person who bought that is also at risk. Once you've, you've 
botted a uh, Internet of Things, the likelihood that you can jump around on the Wi-Fi network uh, that it's connected to uh, is pretty high. Uh, so those those folks shouldn't relax and say, "Yeah, it's it, it's a problem for Dine, but not for me." Um, uh, but for many of them have no idea how to remediate this and never will. That's exactly right. They, they, they should be concerned, but ordinary consumers may not know that they should be concerned. And that's where our efforts at educating the public uh, come to bear. Yeah, and we're going to be accelerating those I, efforts. I, I'm guessing for most of these devices, the only remediation tool is a three-pound hammer. Uh, they, they, you, you, you need it. they need to be recalled or uh, destroyed uh, rather than uh, upgraded because they probably can't be upgraded. Uh, and that's going to be painful for everybody. It is, and some products are uh, purchased with a long shelf life in mind. You buy a refrigerator, you're counting on having that for 20 years. Yes, that's right. And if, and, and then it's got a bad internet connection, you know, kind of sloppy first generation internet connection. Uh, you're not going to take a hammer to that one. That's absolutely right. And that again is why it all comes down to security by design, to building products that whenever possible are capable of being patched, upgraded, and mitigated remotely so that these things can be handled rather than having to live with these vulnerabilities for years or decades. And, and you know, um, there's, no, there's no point in pretending that that solves the problem. It just mitigates it because we've been doing that on PCs for 25 years, and we still have vulnerabilities, uh, you know, on the first Tuesday of every month. That's absolutely right. The Internet was designed with fun- with functionality, not security in mind. And we have now spent literally a generation trying to uh, uh, clean up that security debt, trying to patch and bolt on on the back end. And that is a really hard posture to attack the problem from. I am worried that we have a rapidly closing window in which to address the Internet of Things on the front end the right way or we will be repeating the mistakes of the past and spending another generation trying to clean up another mess sounds, again sounds right to me uh, um and it it's as you said it the classic problem with security issues is that uh, there's always somebody for whom security is not that important i uh, and increasingly the social aspects of um, cyber insecurity are figuring out who cares least about security and exploiting them to reach the people who care a lot about it. Absolutely. And the dynamic of cybersecurity, unfortunately, is that you can a perpetrator can knock on 99 well-defended doors and fail, but get into the 100th and be just as effective as if they had gotten into the first. So do we have any idea who's doing this? I don't have anything to add as to attribution at this time. The investigation's ongoing. Okay. Uh, all right. Um, so that does raise the, you, you, you mentioned, uh, uh, another Internet of Things, uh, um, a problem which is medical devices, which increasingly are, are, are networked. Uh, and it's turning out that, uh, I do work with, uh, MedSec, which did the legal research and just, or did the, uh, security research. And, uh, they just had a report issued today, which you probably haven't seen from another security firm validating some of their claims that uh, St. Jude medical devices are insecure uh, and um, actually validating a, a new attack in which people can have their uh, uh, 
the shock administered by hackers, uh, and then the therapy turned off so that as their heart tries to recover from the shock, it's not getting any help. Uh, um, the, I won't ask you to comment on that, but the generally, uh, um, medical devices have up to now not gotten a lot of attention. Uh, uh, is that because they haven't been connected or because they just haven't been hacked as much? Well, the first thing that has to be acknowledged is uh, really the wonder of Internet-connected medical devices. Anyone who spoke with someone who suffers from diabetes, for example, about the positive impact on their lives from having a connected insulin pump would never want to throw cold water Mm -hmm. on the entire Internet-connected things uh, uh, enterprise. But... We have to be very mindful of the risks that come with adopting those technologies. The good news about the Internet of Things is that in some corners, in certain sectors, there have been positive efforts towards enhancing security. So, for example, in the autonomous vehicles uh, uh, se- uh, sector, the Department of Transportation recently re- released very significant guidance, including cybersecurity guidance. In the medical device space, the Food and Drug Administration has issued guidelines for cybersecurity for Internet-connected medical devices. And we really employed a great model at DHS uh, uh, for that um, for that guidance, which we are seeking to replicate with other sector-specific agencies, which is we combined our cybersecurity expertise at DHS with the FDA's expertise in the field of medical devices and their applications, and we assisted on the on behind the scenes the FDA to pro, to promulgate its guidance, which has been uh, well received in the sector and which are important foundations for securing these devices. Yeah, I I noticed that you were you were involved in that, uh, and I assume that's in part because uh, the ICS cert has a lot of uh, history and expertise in this, and you wouldn't expect the FDA to have developed that expertise on its own. Uh, so um, how is the working relationship? With the FDA, it's excellent. Uh, it's excellent. It's operational at the operational level, and it's routine. And uh, you're right. It's through our ICS cert at DHS, which is the Industrial Control System cert, which are really universally recognized as the leading uh, industrial control systems uh, security folks in the world. So I, I, I can't help noticing that uh, there's been a lot of movement on the Internet of Things uh, security in the uh, automotive industry, as it should be, because, you know, uh, soon it will be possible to, to, to uh, just take over a, a car and drive it away, and you won't be able to stop it even if you're inside. Uh, um, and, and so securing those uh, uh, automotive uh, electronics is critical. And Detroit has started offering bounties saying, you find bugs in our stuff and uh, we will pay you. Um, I, I can't help contrasting that with the reaction of the medical industry where St. Jude has said, you find bugs in our uh, uh, products and we will sue your butt. Um, uh, you know, so bounties on the security researchers as opposed to on the bugs. I... Uh, I, I, I don't think you talked about bounties in your uh, uh, guidance uh, for uh, uh, cybersecurity and the Internet of Things or, or medical devices. But does it make sense to uh, encourage a, a little bit more uh, a 21st century view of uh, how to handle security reports? 
so I'm not, I won't comment on the particulars of, of, of uh, the, the MedSec or St. Jude matter, but more generally, it's very important with IoT security, you don't have to reinvent the wheel or start from scratch. There are proven approaches that are effective in traditional network IT right. the, security. The stuff that Google and, and, that and Microsoft be, have been doing for 20 years. Exactly. And you can bring those approaches over to the IoT. And a great example is the effectiveness of bug bounty programs. Bug bounty programs are terrific. And we've worked uh, with many of the pioneers of bug bounty programs, women like Katie Musoris and others. And uh, so, so it's a great model. It's worked in traditional network IT security. And uh, manufacturers and designers of Internet-connected products should consider uh, start initiating uh, bug bounty programs of their own. So I, I, I jumped into this without giving you a chance to uh, introduce yourself and your office, which is new. I, uh, I, when I headed the policy office, we had somebody who sorted it, uh, uh, a policy on cybersecurity, but uh, it was mostly kind of because I was interested in it. Uh, uh, but now we've got an assistant secretary dealing with policy. You're obviously deeply involved in uh, what's happening in the world of cybersecurity. Where did the office come from? What's its uh, jurisdiction, uh, and how did you come to it? Our secretary started our office uh, in the last couple of years because we wanted an office that could come face-to-face with the most complex and thorny cybersecurity and technology policy challenges and formulate a game plan for addressing them. And what I do to accomplish that is I make sure we're accounting for the views from across our department, the views of our law enforcement agencies mm-hmm. that are leading cybercrime investigations and bringing perpetrators to justice, the views and capabilities of our network protection operators yep. who are working every day to respond to and mitigate cyber intrusions and promote best practices and share cyber threat information, and then, of course, keeping an eye on the future for example, the department's research and development capabilities, ensuring that those R&D efforts are aligned to our priorities so that we're developing the next generation of capabilities that's, that are going to help our department do its cybersecurity work in the out years. When we have our game plan, I take it to the secretary, I take it to the White House and other agencies, and I take it to the private sector to make sure we can get done as much as we can. See, now I thought it was just that uh, the un- the, uh, the deputy secretary, uh, Mallorca, said, I never want to go to another deputies meeting on cyber again. Uh, let's give Rob a job that we can send him to the deputies meetings instead. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's not answering that question. That must be a paraphrase. <laughs> so um, speaking of deputies meetings, and, and we, we won't spend too much, uh, we'll, this will be our last uh, uh, uh topic, but it's a rich one. Um, the DNC hacks, which we talked about earlier, uh, and the releases of uh, information uh, um, on WikiLeaks and uh, DC Leaks and elsewhere, uh, Guccifer too, uh, have been mostly attributed back to the Russians. Uh, this is a brand new way of using cyber uh, uh, espionage, not uh, to steal the secrets, but to disclose the secrets, uh, uh, and in ways that uh, uh, cast doubt on the uh, election, harm certain candidates, uh, um, and 
the president has said we will retaliate, we will uh, engage in action, we've decided it's the Russians that are doing some of these things at least, uh, uh, we're going to retaliate. Uh, I assume DHS has to be part of that if only because, uh, you know, our retaliation doesn't end the cycle of uh, of hacking. It just means that uh, the Russians have to be more creative about what they're doing with their capabilities. Uh, how do you participate in discussions about uh, uh, retaliation? And uh, I, indeed, you actually you were part of the attribution to the Russians. Uh, how do you decide on attribution? DHS, with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence did, in fact, recently attribute the hacks of the DNC and the DCCC to the Russian government, uh, which we assess is for the purpose of interfering in our domestic elections processes. Mm -hmm. Uh, The attribution uh, was based on a technical analysis, uh, uh, both our own as well as uh, uh, learning from the technical analyses that were conducted by some in the private sector. And why did the FBI not do this? Because uh, they certainly have done other attributions. Uh, uh, I thought it was striking that the, DHS and DNI did this one. The FBI is certainly very engaged. The attribution statement was issued jointly by the DNI and DHS because typically the intelligence community uh, is a lead for determining state conduct and who was behind things, which the DNI would represent. DHS's role is particularly important in this context, in this context because DHS is the lead department for working with states on on helping them on a voluntary basis to secure their electoral infrastructure. And a critical part of the message after the actual factual attribution was to encourage states to come on a voluntary basis to request the assistance of DHS to help them harden up their electoral infrastructure. And, I, you know, I've, I've followed that from a distance for a while, and, and um, I have always thought that trying to put uh, our voting systems on the Internet or uh, really into computers that can't be uh, audited uh, is uh, you know, clinically insane. Um, and, and yet, for the longest time, federal legislation has kind of encouraged people to do that, at least indirectly, by saying, well, whatever you do, make sure there's never another hanging chad to, to worry about. Uh, so we're going to give you money and you can get rid of those, uh, IBM, uh, uh, punch card, uh, systems. Uh, uh, and then uh, saying, you know, you need to make sure that, uh, uh, members of the armed forces can vote. And we're not going to tell you that you can't have them PDF their votes to you over the Internet, which is nutty. Uh, but we, the federal government has some responsibility, I think, for leading uh, election officials down into this blind alley a little. What we have to do as a country is to balance the uh, uh, critical and, and, and complementary goals of uh, wide access to the vote. Right. And also security of the vote and the related inter- infrastructure. And we are achieving that. I want to let listeners know that it would be extraordinarily difficult, even for a determined nation state adversary, 
to manipulate the actual vote count of our national elections. The electoral infrastructure in this country is distributed across over 9,000 state, local, county jurisdictions. And that decentralized nature serves actually as a benefit when it comes to cybersecurity because you can't use one attack right. to cover the field. So we are, uh, but we want to leave no stone unturned. Everybody is acutely aware of the risks that could be posed if someone decided to even try, and we want to leave no stone unturned. And so we're offering our assistance, our expertise at DHS on a voluntary basis to states to come work with us. I'm very happy that uh, to, to report that at last count, uh, it may even be higher by now, there were 36 states who had come in, who had come to us and said, we want to, we want your help. And, uh, can you, can you give us the short version of what you tell people if somebody says, uh, uh should I be using, uh, um, systems that have, uh, an ability to, uh, you know, that, that, that produce a printed ballot that even if it's only for audit purposes, uh, people can look at it and say, yeah, that's my ballot. And then, uh, uh, it just gets optically read or, and the only, calculation is is done of the optical reading is that a, a particularly effective system compared to handing them uh, the equivalent of an ipad and saying mark this and hit uh, enter so there are a few services provi- we provide first we can conduct remote vulnerability vulnerability scanning of state election systems okay to see if there are vulnerabilities and if there are to give them information and help them mitigate we also have best practices that we can recommend. For example, paper audit trails are a best practice. Internet, the actual voting machines should not be connected to the internet. Mm-hmm. And then we share threat information as well. If we have IP addresses or other indicators uh, that adversaries may be using to uh, uh, scan or attack election systems, we will share those out broadly to all states through the multi-state ISAC and through other mechanisms. We coordinate very closely with the FBI. Uh, we also coordinate very closely with the uh, Election Assistance Commission, which is a bipartisan uh, commission uh, that was stood up to help uh, states uh, with their voting enterprises. And we coordinate, of course, very closely with the states themselves. Okay. Well, I, I, I agree with you. It's a very decentralized system and it would be very difficult to, uh, to throw an election. Uh, um, it might be easier to make people wonder whether the election was thrown by, uh, 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 selectively getting into a few systems and just, even if you couldn't actually flip the votes, leave people with doubts. Uh, I, I certainly remember 2000, the election of 2000. Everything that could be misconstrued as evil that was probably just a mistake was misconstrued as evil uh, by one side or the other. Um, so uh, we we do still have to worry that uh, even a little intrusion creates a surprisingly large impact. Well, any outsiders who are thinking about influencing or meddling in the election should know uh, that we're onto them, that they will feel a response, and we're going to choose when they feel it. So there, that's a that's a fair question. Uh, now this will be the last set of questions: is what to do 
about these kinds of intrusions. Uh, um, I know that from time to time, and the president has said, and you have said uh, uh, today, uh, we'll make our own decision about what we do and when we do it. Uh, uh, but I'm not sure that, that it's reasonable to say, and we may not tell everybody about what we did because there are a lot of people watching, many of whom could do the same thing. It's not as though the Chinese couldn't do this. It's probably not as though the North Koreans and certainly the Iranians couldn't do some of this uh, sort of thing. And if they don't see a response that uh, they consider deterring, then maybe they will. We're very mindful of the need for deterrence. Some of what we do uh, may be seen. Some uh, may not be, and uh, those as to whom the response is directed will find out. All right. Rob, uh, I, uh, that's a great note to uh, to close on. Uh, uh, thanks so much for uh, for coming in. Uh, I'm just delighted that there is a uh, cybersecurity policy assistant secretary now at DHS. Uh, I feel almost paternal uh, about the office. So uh, uh, welcome to the club. Uh, and uh, um, I assume you'll be out of government unless something surprising happens in January. Uh, um, and uh, I look forward to hearing what you're doing next. Thank you very much, Stuart. All right. So thanks to Rob Silvers, to Mike Faddis, to uh, Maury Shank, and to Katie Castle. As always, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Uh, send us your suggestions uh, at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, and uh, if you've got good reviews, we'd love to receive them. This has been episode 135 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we're going to be joined by Professor Jonathan Zittrain, by Scott Charney of Microsoft. Uh, and we hope you'll join us uh, for those and other guests as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. Thank you.